do you know, I thought I'd lost Sam then. I was just about to have a panic that somehow um, I'd have to end up doing the talk or we could ask for volunteers. But um, I'm going to pray for Sam, more for my nerves than his, actually. So, Lord, thank you so much for our lovely Sam. Uh, we so love him and appreciate him here in this church community. And we pray for him now as he shares with us that you would really uh, fill him with your Holy Spirit, that he might speak words of life and truth uh, about who you are and how he can best engage with the reality of your love. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, hello to those of you I know. If I don't know you, as Fran said, my name is Sam. I'm the associate minister here. I'm going to try and move forward a bit because I feel I don't like the distance, you know. Also, um, that wasn't very far forwards, was it? Every little counts. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit worried that I might have just dislocated my daughter's elbow. So I'm kind of coming into this... <laughs> <laughs> with a kind of sense of profound parental guilt. Um, <laughs> so she's probably just out weeping in the back somewhere. Don't worry. She'll probably be fine. Um, <laughs> sorry? Oh, that's good. Okay, she seems a bit better. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's something about kind of being fully present in a room when you're very anxious that you've just done a serious injury to your child. It's not her first rodeo. Um, all right, um, yes, so today we're still going through um, this amazing book by Henri Now and Spiritual Formation, um, and it kind of feels like just a really lovely way of starting our year together, um, thinking what is it that God might be wanting to do kind of on the interior side of our lives, like how, how am I actually doing, how am I actually being formed as a human person, is my, is my life kind of getting better, moving forward, um, and Henri Now and kind of talks about that as these movements from things that are unhealthy to things that are healthy. So moving in our lives from an attitude of resentment to an attitude of gratitude. I hate that phrase. Sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Attitude of gratitude. But you know, um, maybe Fran used it last week. Sorry, Fran. You didn't. Thank goodness. Um, um, or moving from sorrow into joy. And, and what these journeys can look like in a really kind of mature way, not a simplistic way, recognizing that stuff happens over a long period of time in our lives. It's not a to-do list. But these are kind of things that God wants to free us from um, and into. And today we're looking at the uh, fantastic chapter, um, From Fear into Love. Um, and I wanted to start by doing, how long have we got? Okay, fine. Uh, I, by doing a little bit of a kind of Lectio Divina. Now, I'm not very good at leading these things. So basically, what I'm going to do is read a short passage from the New Testament, a story of Jesus, and I'm going to read it and then leave a gap, read it and leave a gap, read it and leave a gap. That's all we're going to do. Does that make sense? And the point is just to try and hear the story as if you are there. So to be really present to it. Don't try and focus in on any bits of the story. Don't try and solve the riddle of the story. Just be present to the reading of the text um, and then give it some space. You may notice things recurringly, you, that you notice something the first time and that's what you keep noticing. You may notice that the third reading of it feels completely different, whatever. But we're just going to give the text a little bit of space. Is that okay? And then we'll go from there. So, it might just be worth finding yourself comfortable in your chair, if that's possible. And take a few deep breaths. And bring your whole self to the reading of the story.
That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. 
the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Just in this moment of quiet, pinpoint maybe, was what stood out to you? In that story, was there anything that you haven't noticed when you've previously heard that story? Anything you feel particularly pertinent to your life now? Anything that gives fills you with incredulity or kind of a sense of really or anger or doubt? Well done. I was wondering about whether to get you to share about that, but we might do a bit of that later. Um, yeah, I really love that story. It's probably a story that if you've been around churches for any length of time, you've probably heard that story preached on um, a thousand times or, or roughly a thousand times. One of the phrases that stood out to me this time as I was looking at that this week um, was Jesus's question at the end. Um, and if you noticed, Jesus didn't say to them, so there's the disciples after the storm, and it's all calmed down. And Jesus didn't say to them, why were you so afraid? As if, like, he was asking about the storm. Did you notice that? Maybe it was just me then. But um, he, he asked them a slightly different question. He said, why are you so afraid? And, and what, one of the things I love about this story is I feel like um, it's a story about a moment, but in many ways it's a story about our whole lives, isn't it? It's a story about what it feels like to, to live in a situation of fear or to, to kind of be aware of the threats against us or things that are going on in life that are out of our control and our kind of sense of crying out to God and being like, don't you even care? Don't you, don't you even care if we drown while you're asleep? Um, and, and what happens out of that. Um, and, and I really love that because I think it kind of, on a, on a really deep level, our whole lives are about how we cope in the storms of life, aren't they? About how we deal with the kind of the, the ongoing fear um, in our lives. Uh, now and at the beginning of this chapter, if I could have the slide up, says um, he talks about the kind of the prevalence of fear in our lives. And at first, I was kind of wondering if he was overstating it a bit. And as we kind of read through this, I'd be interested. Again, I might not do, even do feedback, but just have a think: is he overstating this, or do you think he's right? Um, he says this: we are fearful people. The more people I come to know, and the more I come to know people, the more I am overwhelmed by the negative power of fear. It often seems that fear has invaded every part of our being to such a degree that we no longer know what a life without fear would feel like. There always seems to be something to fear. 
Something within us or around us. Something close or far away. Something visible or invisible. Something in ourselves, in others, or in God. There never seems to be a totally fear-free moment. When we think, talk, act, or react, fear always seems to be there. An omnipresent force that we cannot shake off. Often fear has penetrated our inner selves so deeply that it controls, whether we are aware of it or not, most of our choices and decisions. Now, I was really struck by that, particularly that kind of way he puts it in that last phrase. Often fear has penetrated our inner selves so deeply that it controls, whether we, like, whether we are aware of it or not, most of our choices and decisions. Because as I was coming to this this week, I was like, you know, I always feel when I'm, when I'm giving a talk in church, like I need to really prove my case. So I need to have a kind of watertight, if I'm claiming something, even if it's what Henri Nouwen says, then I need to come with some expertise. And so I spent a bit of the week kind of Googling like what psychologists said about, I was looking for like a pithy little quote to say, yes, everyone lives in fear all of the time. Um, and for the, you know, just give me the benefit of the doubt on that and assume that I found one. Um, but the reality is, I, 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 like as I was kind of looking for that and wondering about it, is, is this right? Is, do we all live out of fear all the time? I kind of did a bit of an exercise on my own life and I kind of thought it through a little bit. Um, and without finding a psychologist's quote, um, there may well be one, may well be true, um, but I didn't have any problem at all looking through my life and coming up with a bunch of ways that I kind of live in fear, from kind of like the slightly more kind of mundane-y, kind of benign ones, like I'm slightly afraid of dogs all the time. You know, so when I walk around past a dog, I tend to put my hand in my pocket. Doesn't you know, not if it's a tiny one, obviously, but like if someone's carrying a chihuahua in their handbag, I'm not like going to fight or flight. But um but like, you know, kind of that there's that kind of awareness. Uh what else am I afraid of? Um Enneagram number eights. Pretty scared of Enneagram number eights. Um uh, I worry, kind of then, the, probably the kind of worries that a lot of us have, like, am I going to have enough money? Classic one. Who's not ever worried about money, for crying out loud? Um, or the kind of the safety of ourselves or our family or our children who may well have dislocated elbows. Or, um, and then the kind of, like, you poke a bit more under the surface. And there's these slightly more kind of, I guess, insidious fears. Like, I think my main fear, uh, like, <laughs> is that I'll be found out. I don't know if any of you, like, got major imposter syndrome in most parts of my life, where I basically worry that if someone really knew me, like, if you guys really understood who I was, you would really regret putting me in any kind of a position of spiritual leader. Like, like if Melissa really knew me, do you know what I mean? And actually, then, then it's like fear can take this kind of, I don't necessarily notice that that's there most of the time but it affects the way I do most things. Being afraid affects most things. And one of the things um, that Henri Nouwen says, uh, I don't need the slide at the moment, um, is that um, basically, if he calls it living in the house of fear. If, if, if we live in the house of fear, if we make fear our home, and most of our actions subconsciously or consciously are, are, are kind of coming from a place of needing to be in self-preservation or needing uh, to prove ourselves or needing to kind of make sure I'm safe in the future, um, then that has a few effects on us as people. And probably all of us will be able to relate to these. Firstly, if you're in fear, you're going to be less creative. If your mind is, is kind of in a place of needing to um, kind of 
but guard against the worries about tomorrow. What you're not thinking about is how can I, how can I live as a full human being? How can I like, really grow in what I want to be growing in? How can I do my best work? Because I'm thinking about how, for, for example, I've, like, and I'm not saying this so that you'll come up and affirm me after this, but, but giving a talk in a church, even, you know, if, to you nice people, um, is a scary thing for me. And, and not from the sense of I get nervous about talking up front per se, but because I feel this enormous pressure to say something that is worth half an hour of your time, and preferably where you think, whoa, for a, you know, for a very young man, <laughs> there's a lot of wisdom here. Uh, and, and, um, and, and that comes with a lot of pressure. The problem is, when that is the pressure sitting on my week, I'm not actually thinking about how I can do the best job of, of actually helping you all think through what spirituality might look like in real life. I'm thinking, how can I do the best job of making you impressed at me? And that's a different task. And that means that I'm, I, like, I become actually less creative. I become less loving, less actually aware of the needs of the people in the room. Because I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. Um, <laughs> this week, I had a weird thing where Martha was up in the night a lot one night as our five-year-old. Um, and she just, like, it was one of those things where you resettle her, you go back to bed, it's five, ten minutes, and then the call comes again. And then you go down. Okay, it's all right. We'll resettle. Go back to bed. Ten minutes. Just back to sleep. And it, this was going on for like half an hour. And in my mind, I, by, the, by the kind of... Sorry, an hour and a half. Not half an hour. Half an hour is nothing. All done half an hour. Um, but in my mind, where I kind of started off by being like, okay, this is about Martha, and how can, I, how can I support Martha in this space and get her back to sleep, feeling safe, and blah, blah, blah. By half an hour in, I was not thinking about how I could support Martha anymore. I was thinking, I'm so anxious about the morning. I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to feel wrecked. I've got a ton of stuff to do tomorrow. I need to be on my best behavior for that thing or whatever. And... Um, and I was, I was thinking so much about what would happen the next morning that I was actually no longer present to my child who was feeling upset and distressed in the middle of the night. And so my fear, I hope that doesn't seem tenuous, but I'm sure you've all kind of been in that situation. My fear was actually stopping me, be present, be with Martha. Um, and, and finally, I think fear just takes the fun out of life, doesn't it? Like, I, I'm not fully myself when I'm afraid, when I'm living out of a place um, of anxiety. Now, the problem with this is that all of us have probably, again, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you'll have heard a talk on fear um, and how to overcome fear in your life. And a lot of the ones that I've heard have sounded something like this. Um, did you know that in the Bible, the phrase, do not fear, is said 365 times, which, as every preacher would be very happy to tell you, is one for every day of the year. Oh. Or, or like, actually, the way to overcome fear in your life is to read the Bible more and claim the promises of God more. Like, if you claim the truth of God, maybe in prayer, actually, God says, oh, you know, I am with you and I will not forsake you. Okay, great, I'm with you. And, I and so the kind of, the thing is like, a, is a mind game about kind of overcoming your fear. Or, or like the message that um, you don't need to be afraid because God is on your side, 
kind of as opposed to their side. And that means that you've got, your God is bigger than their God and will duff up their God. And so you don't need to be afraid. Do you know what I mean? Like often our language around overcoming fear in Christianity is all about the, basically the size and the power of God. It's all about having the biggest God who you don't need to be afraid because he's on your side. Churches have also done some pretty dark things with fear. Like fear is a really good way to control a room full of people. Like fear of hell. Probably a number of us um, have come from contexts where that's been used as kind of like, if I actually, if I can make you afraid of God eternally damning you and punishing you, I can basically get you to do whatever I like. And, and, and religion has been a really, really powerful tool um, in that way. We can also be great in religious contexts, and I don't think it's just the church about this. In fact, it's probably not just religious contexts about this, uh, but fear of being kicked out, fear of being on the wrong side of the group. And so we can kind of have this fear of, oh, what if I don't fit in here and I get kicked out? Um, fear of the leader or of the elders. There's nothing to be afraid of here, but... Um, but, uh, yeah, that can be a really powerful thing. Um, or fear of just those other people out there. So, like, you're okay because you're the cool group and you think the right things about faith and life and politics and spirituality and everything like that. But those guys over there. Um, and there can be all sorts of kind of fears. But I love um, what Henri Nouwen does in this chapter. And it's nothing like any of that. The, his argument for how we move past fear in our lives is nothing to do with God's bigness. And it's nothing to do with God being on our side as opposed to someone else's. And it's nothing to do with any of those kind of narratives. His thing is if you want to move out of fear, it looks like this. And then he tells a story. Ah. And the story he tells is of a monastery um, in Russia in the 15th century. And uh, the, the monastery is in a small town, and there's a bunch of monks who live in the monastery. Um, and over time, this monastery was, came to be under attack. And it was being attacked, uh, kind of got, got into like the center of a bunch of kind of fights, I guess, with surrounding towns. And so there were continuous attacks, basically, uh, to claim the town. And in that context, you've got these monks living in this monastery who are increasingly afraid because they, you know, you wake up in the morning and you hear someone like having their head chopped off outside your gate or whatever. It doesn't make you want to just kind of be contemplative and sit with God in prayer. Do you know what I mean? Like it kind of has a way of disrupting <laughs> your ability to live a kind of monastic life of peace and serenity. Um, and so they found themselves basically unable to pray. And the abbot went to his icon painter. So I like sometimes you get these things called icons, uh, which many of you might know, which is basically it's a piece of art that's designed to help you to pray. So um, the abbot went to their icon painter, who was a guy called Rublev, or Rublev, or whatever, I don't know how you say it, um, and said, will you, will you please create us an icon that will help us to stay focused and stay grounded in peace through this conflict? And so Rublev went away and painted what came to be known as Rublev's icon. Um, can, I have the, can I have the screen again? Is it gone? Have we lost me? Shall I unplug and plug in again? It's been 
this is one of one of the most famous icons of all time, and so probably a lot of you uh, will have seen this before. But Rublev painted this, and he painted it, <laughs> as you're looking at it, you might not immediately be like, oh, yeah, I can see how that would work. Um, but uh, let me tell you a bit of the story behind this icon. Um, the icon is themed off of a story in the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, there's a guy called Abraham, and Abraham... Um, is uh, he's desperate to have a kid, and he's getting very old, and he can't have children. Um, and then one day, um, he's visited by three men. Um, and he something about these three guys, Abraham recognizes, oh, there's, there's something more going on here. Maybe these are angels, maybe it's God, maybe it's, but there's something more going on here. And anyway, Abraham hosts them, he sets a table for them, he prepares a meal, um, and then kind of stands off to the side while they eat. But there's these three guys. And over time, that story um, kind of became like, a lot of theologians thought about it, and they were like, I wonder what was going on in that story. What if those three kind of men, angels, what if that was the three-in-one God coming to visit Abraham. So what if you've got spirit, father, son coming and actually the whole Godhead just becomes present to Abraham in that moment. And so Rublev was kind of playing off that idea. So you've got a couple of things going on here. Firstly, three chaps sitting around a table eating food. But Rublev is painting basically what he sees as the Trinity. So what does God look like in painted form? Um, which I, you know, maybe it wouldn't be three dudes in hindsight, but hey. Um, and what you've got on the left is, is God the Father. It's not particularly clear, uh, but God the Father is gazing kind of at um, God the Holy Spirit. And that, but he's blessing the cup of God the Son, of Jesus. Um, and then if you look at them, they're kind of all pointed in towards each other. So it's, it kind of becomes like the circle. Like if you follow the pointing of one and the eye gaze of the other, you kind of end up going in a bit of a circular loop where all of them are kind of deferring to each other, pointing towards each other, showing love and kindness towards each other. And, and Rublev, wanted, what he wanted to do was basically say, at the heart of God, at the heart of who God is, is this dance of love and kindness and honor and generosity and givenness and 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 I, I know it seems a lot to look in a like really rusty old painting, but he was actually thinking that. Um, and this has become kind of like one of the most famous icons uh, in the history of the church. But there's another really, really cool thing about it, which I think is why Henri Nouwen talks about it. It's all very well to say, um, like, basically, don't be afraid because God is love. But there's something else in this painting that's really, really cool. And that is that at the front of it, um, you'll notice in the, in the front of the table, there's this little rectangular hole. Um, in fact, some art historians, I don't know if this is conclusively proven or whatever, just my, that's my saying, uh, make sure you've got your facts straight, Sam, before you do a preach. Uh, but there, some art historians think that there's traces of glue on here. Maybe there used to be a mirror um, stuck to this little square hole. But the idea either way is that there's, it's not just a picture of God as a kind of exclusive whole. But this is a picture of something really, really more interesting than that. It's God with space in God for us to join in. 
like the hole becomes like a window through which the person looking at the icon is invited around the table with the Godhead. Does that make sense? That, the, that God is, the love of God isn't just this thing that, that happens and then, and then you either get that God to kind of be on your side or not. There's something much more affirming, much more inclusive, much more expansive, I think, about saying, you know the life of God existing as three parts? You're welcome in that life. Like God wants to involve you in the love of God, right at the core of, of who he is. There's a space at the table for you. They Even like the way they're laid out, you can see there's actually kind of that side of the table is free. Uh, and I just, I completely love that image. I love that, um, that the way that we're invited to move past fear in our lives is basically to get to know the love of God better and to realize that the love of God isn't this distant thing, but it's something that I can actually enter into um, and join in with and recognize that in my fear, I'm welcomed by a divine love. And in my fear, I'm welcomed at the table. But then there's something also really cool that happens. Because if the table is big enough for you, then it's big enough for the person next to you. And it's big enough for the person next to them. If the table is big enough for us, then it's big enough for everyone. And um, as we kind of go through this series, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? If we kind of think about, like, uh, like I said earlier, it's a kind of chance to think about our interior lives and what is God wanting to do and how are we actually kind of moving into maturity, into wholeness as people, as humans. Um, but there's also this thing where I feel like <laughs> this book kind of moves to a place where it becomes about more than just that. Because kind of like we said earlier, people who are afraid can be used for some quite dangerous things. And um, I kind of was wondering how to say this. I'm kind of, I don't know how this is going to all come out, by the way. Stuff's about to fall out of my mouth, and we'll just kind of see um, what happens. Um, but one of the... One of the one of the problems of being a people who are afraid isn't just that as individuals we're not living our best life or that as individuals we are uh, maybe slightly less happy than we could be or something like that. But the, I feel like the problem really gets to actually if, if a whole country is kind of sitting in a bit of fear, then our leaders can use that fear and point it at someone else and basically say, oh, it's those people that, you, that are the problem. And so our fear is actually weaponized, which means that when we're talking about this stuff, we are talking about our own internal spiritual development. But we're also saying, wouldn't it be amazing if as a society we found ourselves free from fear? And um, uh, over time, uh, in fact, the, uh, I did find a quote for this one. Um, there's a guy called Brian Stevenson, who's a, a lawyer in the States, um, and he works a lot with um, kind of justice issues uh, with racial minorities. And um, he says this, and I think this is deeply, deeply true. Um, Fear and anger are the essential ingredients of injustice, of oppression, of inequality. Go anywhere in the world where people are being abused or mistreated, where their rights are not protected, 
and you'll find people justifying those violations of rights with these narratives of fear and anger. And I think, to be honest, that's the oldest trick in the book, isn't it? Whether it's because of someone's religion or someone's politics or someone's skin color or someone's sexuality or someone's gender or whatever it is, the temptation is that we find people to kind of put our fear on and then weaponize ourselves, weaponize each other. And I think one of the things this, this picture does is it completely undermines that story because the space at the table is big enough for everyone. There is no one who doesn't fit into that love. And if, you, if we actually genuinely realize it, if we actually genuinely encounter it, then I think it's going to change. I think it would actually change more than just our little lives in this room. Imagine if, <laughs> imagine if the church were just unafraid and we didn't have to engage in political hatred and in kind of binary polar thinking. We didn't have to other the other. Imagine what kind of a difference that would make in, in the, the way that the world works. Do you see? Like this stuff is, is all about the individual, but it's also kind of much, much bigger. And um, kind of helps us get rid of the whole kind of God is on my side and he's bigger than their gods and he's going to kick their ass kind of whole narrative because this God's love is big enough. There's space at the table. And I love Jesus in this passage that we read earlier. Um, There's no blaming in Jesus. The storm is no one's fault. There's a kind of kindness and there's a peace. And... um, and in that context, then, he's able just to say to his guys, why were you so afraid? Do you still not trust? Do you still not believe? Um, I don't quite know where to leave that, but um, I wonder about maybe just spending some time praying with this icon. might be a really cool thing to do. Um, and so what we're going to do is I was going to bring in an egg timer. Um, I didn't bring in an egg timer. So I will set a little timer on my phone. Um, and why don't we spend four minutes, it's not very long, four minutes, um, in quiet, um, looking at this icon and just let it, it's quite, sorry, it's quite small up there, um, but just kind of be open to it. What does this say to you? What does the passage earlier say to you? Um, and to be honest, I'm not really used to this whole thing. Uh, Naren talks a lot about praying with icons and praying with images and just actually the the the, the the kind of practice of being open to God speaking through a picture. I've never done that before in my life. It's not been a part of my church tradition at all. So this feels a bit funny to me. But let's all just try this together. Spend four minutes in quiet. What is this picture? What does this icon invite us into? Um, And then the band are going to lead us in another song. Does that make any sense? Cool. Engage in this bit however you would like. I will set a timer for four minutes.